Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, employment stakes are raised on the choice to vaccinate, a partisan clash on raising the debt ceiling, and how North Carolina ranks high as a great place to live, but the worst place to work. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. FDA approval of Pfizer's COVID vaccine is proving to be a game changer, emboldening President Joe Biden to raise the stakes on the choice to vaccinate and extend vaccine requirements to private industry. And the Labor Department is working on emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more workers to ensure their workers are fully vaccinated and regularly tested. This harder line and effort to impose accountability on the private sector is being felt right here in North Carolina, as now the technology company SAS Institute has announced all employees must be vaccinated or they will not be working for SAS. In addition to the FDA-approved vaccine, let's talk more about why the president is running out of patience in terms of COVID's resurging spread and public health impact. I wanna welcome Dr. Delon Canterbury of Geriatrics and the African-American COVID Task Force Plus, Lamicia Whittington of Advanced Carolina and Greg Hedgepeth of Substantial Media. So glad to have all three of you here with us. Dr. Canterbury, can you provide us an update on the number of COVID deaths and how we're doing here in North Carolina? Yes, absolutely. So as of today, we have about a million point three cases of COVID in North Carolina, uh, looking at about 15,000 deaths, a little bit over that. We were looking at about half that at the beginning of the year around January and February, as well as almost half the cases. So overall, the honesty is Delta has been a game changer. So this has really led to exponential growth in COVID cases, especially among our unvaccinated communities and as well as children. And I so, think that, that that unvaccinated population is key because we hear about the, the rising numbers of cases and what this might mean for uh, vaccinating. And perhaps that's the motivation for President Biden saying, listen, we have to do something. Now, it may be an approach, but trying to mandate and force something on people can never really go as well as it looks on paper. And so that's going to lead to some pushback politically. It's going to lead to some pushback among those who still may be misinformed from their, you know, anecdotes or social media. And so although he's attempted, quote unquote, the carrot and stick approach, I think that mandating may be a little bit late in the game, to be frank, not to mention that Honestly, we've had been dealing with this for quite a while, right? And we're seeing cases go up. So I understand that, frankly, the communication just hasn't been there. We haven't put the resources into really getting the word out and educating people and attacking the misinformation where it starts. And so this small percentage of people who may be anti-vax are leading this political charge that's causing swayed views and is unfortunately causing harm. I think it's so interesting that you'd say it's a bit late in the game for all of this. Lamicia, um, you know, are we still concerned about vaccine equity or do, pe or do people have their information and they're just making the choice right now? 
Um, there's definitely immense concern with vaccine equity. Um, it, it was equity and issues last year before the, the vaccine. And so 52% of our total population in North Carolina has been fully vaccinated. Um, as of late July this year, white adults accounted for the largest share of unvaccinated adults at 57%. But despite this, Black and Latinx people remain less likely than their white counterparts who have received a vaccine. And so the CDC elevated contributing factors. Why is this, right? So if you have a larger share of white population that's unvaccinated in North Carolina, then what's going on with the higher rates of COVID contraction in Black communities? Why is that disparity there? So we're looking at neighborhoods and physical environments, the fact of houselessness, pandemic, other issues we've spoken about in pandemic, but our communities have been in pandemic with these issues. Gaps in healthcare access. We've lost rural hospitals leading into pandemic. This has created medical deserts, food insecure areas without lack of access to or lack of access to healthy foods, fruits, veggies, transportation and neighborhood conditions. So being able to actually travel to vaccination sites, being able to uh, go again for your second dose, those are impediments, right? That have created barriers for our communities. Job access and working conditions, the fact that you can still go get the vaccine, but then go to your, your employer who isn't actually required to do certain social distancing. And now all of a sudden, here's requirements, but it's led into making a pandemic much worse on top of environmental uh, disasters, pollution sites that arrive in our communities, which actually threatens the actual viability and effectiveness of the vaccine. So even when our communities take the vaccine, what's the long-term of that vaccine surviving when your body is already over-contaminated and polluted? And that's the real facts. Well, those are real facts, and there are a lot of different factors. And uh, Greg, Dr. Canterbury mentioned it's a little late in the game. Businesses are open. People are going to concerts and football games. Is it a little bit late in the process? And if so, what can be done to get in control of this virus? I, w I wouldn't agree that it's a little too late in the game, right? Because something has to be done. Do nothing and you're a horrible leader. Do something, have a well thought out plan and somebody's gonna oppose it, right? Um, I I'll share that the American people, our nation was at a breaking point, right? We were, we were at a point where as we talk job loss, as we talk mental health and stability of family, when we talk about learning laws, K through 12 and post-secondary education, we had to do something. And that something came in the form of vac vaccine. And as you mentioned, the carrot or the stick, right? Uh, always dangle the carrot first. And that carrot was, hey, let's get back to normal. Let's take this vaccine and let's try to get back to seeing families and, and congregating in public spaces again. Uh, and I just don't think that the administration thought it would be as opposed as it currently is. And so that's led to some challenges, right? Uh, but I'm hopeful uh, that as we continue to think about, you know, mandates and, and opportunities to continue to educate, and as Lamisha mentioned so elegantly, uh, just some of those uh, spaces and places where we need to be more proactive and meet people where they are, that we can begin to get on the top of this thing and turn it the right way. Well, Greg, what do you think about the health care costs, the costs to businesses, um, certainly the emotional and social costs of COVID, but do you think that the numbers perhaps have not yet been revealed about what this is costing businesses, what this is costing the healthcare industry. Listen, I'll share with you, man, we are still analyzing and evaluating the micro impacts of this pandemic, this ongoing pandemic. And I read somewhere it was like $5.7 trillion uh, as related to the cost uh, uh, for, for 
treating uh, patients with COVID, whether it be vaccinated or unvaccinated. Let's not get it twisted. You can be vaccinated and still get this virus, but at least you've got some type of antibody or something in you, doctor, that, that'll, that'll kind of help you fight it. And so when we start to really think about just, I, I think about my even own personal space uh, and, and people having to, to go out because of, you know, exposure or, you know, having symptoms of COVID. Those are all, you know, uh, days, time, uh, dollars, labor that we can't get back. And those are those micro things that may not be seen on paper. Uh, and in certain cases, again, as Lamisha said, things are falling through the cracks that you, we're not assessing and analyzing. So there are certainly costs. Certainly, uh, Dr. Canterbury, you can weigh in on this as well as a business person, as a healthcare provider. So the, the truth is our healthcare industry is bleeding. They are roiling right now. They cannot perform elective surgeries. They cannot generate revenue from general visits. And so people are scared to go to the hospital, as most should be. And it's because they are at capacity with COVID patients, majority being unvaccinated. So not only is there an indirect cost loss with maybe absenteeism, losing work, and inability to make money for your family, but is the additional stress on the actual healthcare system, which also adds to that there is caregiver burnout, there's provider burnout. And so we are losing billions, if not trillions, as mentioned, in the healthcare sector alone because of a lack of one, resources, a lack of capacity and an extremely fragmented system that's dependent upon political views of your state. And so we're now even seeing certain resources for monoclonal antibodies being limited depending on where you are in the country. And so we're literally bleeding. We're literally bleeding as a country in our healthcare system. And so I understand the need to make a, a staunch position to try to curb that. Sure. But Honestly, it, it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be a multi-factored, multi-layered level, uh, really starting from the ground up with community health workers and to federal administration. Well, we have a lot of work to do, and like you said, Greg, we can't give up. As we all continue to assess the social, emotional, and economic toll of COVID, the business of government marches on, but not without funding. Right now, according to Democrats, that means raising the debt ceiling. But Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell does not plan to cooperate. In an interview, he said, quote, Republicans are united in opposition to raising the debt ceiling, not because it doesn't need to be done. End quote. And he goes on to say, if Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling, they're going to have to do it alone without Republican support. Thus, the headlines are starting to fill with doom and concern over the crisis that might occur should Congress fail to raise the debt ceiling in the next month. Let's get our panel's thoughts. Greg, how much of the debt ceiling crisis is an effort by Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party to thwart Biden's $3.5 trillion spending plan? It's always that, well, what does the next four years look like? Uh, and I think what the Republicans are trying to do is kind of begin to, to anchor themselves in a position or place where they're saying, we know something needs to be done, but we won't be the ones to do it because if it ever blows back, right, uh, then now we can say those guys did it, not us. Um, and, and but now I'll share, I think there's some valid points, right? While I, I look at the $3.5 trillion plan that has been uh, proposed by, by our current administration and I go, wow, there's some things that we certainly need to be doing. I think we begin to, to start to think about that there is a $89 trillion debt that we have, 277% of GDP. 
So at some point, right, we, we've got to look at how America is spending its money. I think the Secretary uh, of Treasury said, like, look, I can't keep shuffling money uh, uh, between accounts. Like, we're going to have to do something at some point. Someone's going to have to be called to the table on this debt. Um, and, and it's unfortunate, but it's the truth. America does not have a blank check, uh, but we've got to figure out how together we all can kind of come, come together and simply just say, hey, look, let's take a closer look at where we're spending our money instead of just simply spending more money. Well, we've been spending money <laughs> for, for decades. That's true. This is how we do. And every year, um, every time we come around to this point, the debt ceiling gets raised. It's sort of part of the process. It's not supposed to be a partisan decision, but now it's, like everything else, apparently becoming a partisan decision. So, uh, you know, L.A., I want to bring you in because I want to know your thoughts on how this could affect business in North Carolina, for example, regarding our efforts and interest in expanding broadband and managing the economy in light of, of, the, uh, of the recent natural disasters. That's right. So really, when we talk about the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling was implemented uh, in our federal government in top of the 1900s, 1910, to help with World War and those war efforts, right? Being able to allocate funding while our uh, nation at the time was in a depression, uh, going into a pandemic, right? Let's talk about the Spanish flu, 100-year cycle repeats itself. Um, and, but here's the thing, the debt ceiling is actually very rare amongst other developing nations and other top powers. We are one of the only countries that implements a debt ceiling because it's all about when your people are in need, why is there a ceiling, a threshold by which you help those people? And when we talk about what does it mean by debt, which gets to the budget because it's two different things, and that's, that's also concerning. The debt ceiling is what we already owe. The budget is what we need to place money towards in the future. Realistically, when we talk about budgets, at least the basic in our households, you know, you should look at what money do you have, what money do you owe, and what money do you have coming in to pay what you owe. And if you're in the privileged seat, maybe you can save something. Our government doesn't do that. They literally separate what they owe from what they're budgeting. How ludicrous. That's what Congress is doing. And so when we talk about debt and the impact on utilities and broadband, we can't even really get to that discussion of the American Rescue Plan because the debt ceiling means that what will be impacted is paying our military, our veterans, tax refunds, <clears throat> Medicare. We're already in a gap. Social Security recipients and federal workers. So if Congress doesn't come to an agreement, and I believe they will, right? I don't think we're going to an economic down, down spiral just yet. But that debt ceiling can impact paying our people. That's the debt that we're talking about. And in order for us to get to the utilities, right, and I believe it's over 68, uh, uh, $65 billion that's meant to go to broadband infrastructure support in rural communities if the budget is passed this year, right? We're also looking at pollution cleanup. $21 billion would go to cleaning up lead, Superfund sites, the most toxic areas. That's in the budget that we need. That has been, the issue's been exacerbated in pandemic. If we don't pass the budget, and address the debt ceiling, our communities will continue to be left behind and partisan politics will just be looking at the next election cycle. Thank you for giving us the history on that. Dr. Canterbury, where do you see any interest on this from the healthcare industry side? Absolutely tons of interest. We have tons of political motives when it comes to medical devices and the future of really curbing this pandemic. So even simply getting that COVID test kit you're talking about, if there's a federal fund that's backing it, it's going to be impacted. And so we're already dealing with the issues of a lack of resources now. So imagine a government shutdown 
in the middle of a COVID pandemic. That's twofold the problems and threefold the headache. And truthfully, when it comes to the common person, this is going to be a complete nightmare. So imagine more hospitals federally funded shutting down. Imagine college institutes not getting that stipend to do their job and keep people engaged in schools. This is going to hit us all on different levels to the gamut. And so when it comes to the actual health care and the actual deficits, we don't have time to play politics. We are literally dealing with people dying, and we're literally dealing with systems crumpling at its fingertips. So this doesn't need to be another game for politicians between red and blue. It needs to be a unified decision to get to the really the future of curbing this thing altogether. Well stated, Greg. You know, there are a number of choices, I think, uh, th th that are before uh, Congress, and uh, there's reconciliation as an option, a supermajority to overcome a Senate filibuster, and then there's tying uh, the natural disaster aid to this funding. What do you think uh, the choices are out there and, and what would work best? No, it's a great question, uh, and I'll be completely honest with you. At the end of the day, uh, I think, as Lamisha said, we're gonna we're gonna find a way to pass the budget, right? Like that's just gonna happen. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, even Deborah, that you know history has showed us, right, 2016 and so many others, that when it comes time for that debt ceiling to be raised, it will be raised, right? Uh, government shutdowns, if at best uh, um, uh, a, a day or two, or I think at the end of it all, right, it's this idea of forcing the hand of another one. Right. Um, and with, you know, right now us uh, kind of really controlling uh, a majority of the decision making uh, power, um, I think there's some opportunities uh, for us to look at reconciliation. Uh, but I, I, I would almost argue, though, that that is excuse me, contrary to what the administration initially said they wanted to do in the first place, which was to unify. So it's, it, we've got to find a unique way, you all, to stop playing, as, as Dr. Canterbury said really elegantly, you know, this is not a red or white issue, man. It's an American people issue, and we've got to get to the heart and root of why we do this in the first place and serve, and that is to serve the American people. L.A., what are your thoughts on the Democrats' uh, position and power on all of this? Mm -hmm. So early in the year, there were analysis that said that, you know, the Democrats having the presidency and both houses of Congress, that they should undergo a budget reconciliation process. This was recommended at the top of the year. The fact that we're here says a lot about our leadership on both sides. Uh, this process, when we talk about reconciliation, allows the Senate's 50 Democrats to pass legislation without being blocked by a Republican filibuster or essentially just the Republicans blocking it, right? And so that's where the power is, or at least their potential for power. And this can be done since Democrats took the upper house. And the reason we want to talk about reconciliation and why it's a practical step, right, is because Democrats could actually abolish the debt ceiling by raising the debt limit through a reconciliation process. So they could raise the debt limit so high, but that means they need to think 10 years in advance, not their election term. Right. That means they need to raise it where there won't be a limit. Now, Trump actually did that. The previous administration did that in 2019 and it expired this year. So why aren't Democrats considering that? And so we have to be really clear with the power is there, but we need to stop playing the charade at the expense of the American people. You have the power to do it. What's stopping you from doing the reconciliation and the recommendation that guess what? As Greg said, term limits, but you've been there long enough to know how to do reconciliation. Good point. Seven cities in North Carolina are on the list of best places to live in America, according to U.S. News & World Report. But through the lens and research of Oxfam America, North Carolina is the worst place to work in America, ranking number 52 among all 50 states 
plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. That's the very bottom of the list. Looking at those top places to live, though, the four cities among the top 50 were Winston-Salem at 46, Charlotte at 20, Raleigh and Durham at number two. I'm not quite sure why they're both together. Um, but L L L.A., let me ask you, how can North Carolina be a great place to live but not a great place to work? So when we think about the quality of life, right, that includes lack of workers' rights, uh, new industries, but no substantial support for the labor force that already exists, gentrification, healthcare options, the lack thereof, gerrymandering. There's a list, right, of what internally in North Carolina we've been dealing with. Uh, many of the blue collar uh, industries and folks that work in COVID alone, the highest proportion of deaths was among black and brown folks. Black and Latin uh, ex-workers made up of 87% of people described as food production workers, food service workers, construction workers, and healthcare workers were amongst the top most impacted and mortality rates. Those are folks who work in industries. The industries contributed to the COVID-19 contraction and death. So when we talk about a wonderful place to live, it's because the people that has made this place great. It's the culture. It's the actual mutual aid that we give to one another when our employers aren't mandating social distancing. It's the healthcare options that we have provided historically for each other and community when we know there's no healthcare option. When hurricanes come through and FEMA doesn't actually get us aid because we're not counted on the census, we give each other aid. And so the culture of North Carolina is what makes it rich. But how our workers, how our contract folks, how our farmers are treated leaves a lot less to be desired. And now that new industries are coming in, new people are coming in. We have nearly 1 million new folks since the last census, right, of last year. That means our existing communities are becoming overburdened due to gentrification and our people being pushed to more rural communities. But those rural communities don't have resources because we haven't had a state budget passed in nearly three years. We're behind, but that's why you're seeing a complex picture of North Carolina that can't just be described in a snapshot of data and statistics. You need to know the people and the communities and they can tell you the real impact. I love that. We are complex and our culture is kind of our gold. Uh, Greg, the ranking is obviously not affecting the influx of newcomers to the state. So do you think that this report will register with those who are in position to improve worker conditions and some of these other items that, that make it, you know, a poor place to work? Yeah, no, I, I certainly hope so. And the reason I say that is because they're making a return. They're making an investment. Right. And the hope is that there's a return on that investment. And it's always reports like this that attract the attention of the many. Right. And and these reports hopefully begin to, as Lamisha said, you know, show a small glimpse of a snapshot. I've, I've had the opportunity and privilege to go to 84 of the 100 counties across North Carolina, both rural and urban to some degree. And you see it in its people. Right. And, and there's a lot to be said about rural North Carolina and infrastructure and investments in those spaces. And so my hope is that these uh, influx of new uh, big businesses that are looking to set up roots in North Carolina begin to invest in those people, right? And find unique ways to increase uh, minimum wage, to increase uh, work uh, employer benefits, to increase uh, and push back on this notion of right to work, right? And, and allow to some degree for some unionization to happen. So. Yeah, and you know, with the la within the last year, there's been more attention, especially after the protests, uh, more attention on diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. and the social interests of organizations. Uh, Dr. Canterbury, are you seeing the that that might be a real interest that would actually help elevate us from that number 52 spot? 
when you start seeing people coalesce and actually get on these goals and really driving some of the equities that have been lacking, particularly in our rural communities, we got to remember nearly 90 of our 100 counties are in underserved rural communities in North Carolina. And what that means is we have medical deserts, we have issues with health care, we have issues with getting providers to meet demands for people, which unfortunately leads to lower quality of life and a lessening of those social determinants of health that lead to better livelihoods and wellness. And so when we start putting people in place who have that at the heart of what they're doing, we can clearly get out of this hole. But the truth is we have huge inequities that have not been addressed. COVID has been the biggest mirror ever in showing that and revealing that to our people. But we do have people in place that are acting against this and are trying to get the movement and the momentum to really move the needle. So and that, I, mm -hmm. and that, that really goes back to where the power is and to, to voting rights and to the people who are in place to make these laws. L.A., you know, do you think that having, a, you know, a labor commission that is Republican-controlled, a general assembly that's Republican-controlled, and having that partisan politics part of this, is that affecting all of this? And, you know, what might be the way around that? It absolutely is affecting our communities. Um, recently, two individuals died in a meat processing facility. At least 23 workers have died in meat packing plants in the last year due to COVID. Um, and to quote Miss um, Sherita McQuillers, um, who is a bus driver in Raleigh for the past 27 years, she estimates that she gives rice to 200 to 250 people a day, right? Since the pandemic began, it's just a snapshot. And she said she was worried about that she would catch the virus like her brother, her brother, who is on dialysis now because of COVID and just her grief and her trauma, but also saying that she would pray every day and cry before she would go into work not to catch COVID. This is the lack of response when it comes down to, again, our lives shouldn't be partisan. There should be no such thing as a Republican-controlled labor commission because you're not Republican, Democrat, Libertarian when you go to work every single day to put food on the table for your people. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Lamisha Whittington, uh, Dr. Delon Canterbury, Greg Hedgepath, thank you so much for being here and for your insights. I want to thank today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.